Today's reading is from uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25, and it can be found on page 914 of the Church Bibles. Um, It is also in your yellow leaflet and on the screen. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, as per usual, it would be really helpful if you had Bibles open in front of you uh, at the passage that Mel uh, just read for us. Now, in 1987, George Michael rather famously told us, what did he tell us? You've got to have faith. You've got to have faith, faith, faith. I'm not going to sing for you. You're probably very thankful for about that. Uh, but faith is a bit of a loaded term, isn't it? Faith is uh, a term that gets used much. So if you read the newspapers, you listen to the radio, people are talking about different faiths and people of faith and all this kind of stuff. And faith is obviously a critical word for us as Christians. But I would like to suggest that perhaps uh, both outside the church as well as inside the church, faith is a little misunderstood. Because those people who are uh, not believers, those people who don't see themselves as religious, would actually be saying to us uh, that uh, we have faith, but they aren't people of faith. And inside the church, we distort faith a little bit. We restrict it. We read before, uh, off the screen, a whole lot of things. And if you look in your order of, order of service, you'll actually see that we call that a declaration of belief or faith. And so sometimes we can divorce faith from its relationship base. We can actually spend time thinking about the things that we believe as the Christian faith, something that's out there, and we lose that relational aspect. So for the people outside, they say, 
you have faith, we don't. And we maybe think of faith just in terms of stuff that we assent to, we agree with, that we might declare out loud, but we lose the relational aspect. Can I just say both things, both inside and outside, they have massive issues because faith is something that shapes life. I'd like to suggest that everyone has faith. Everyone has faith. Everyone has a basis for hope. Everyone has trust in something. To not have faith is actually devastating. To have a life without faith or hope is like having a building without foundations. It just cannot stand. To live a life without hope is something that psychologists would uh, unpack for us as something that is supremely deficient. And when we think about faith and hope and belief, we think of it both on a big scale but also on a personal scale. Let me take you the big one first. We are going through an election campaign, yes? Have you noticed? Uh, it's been going on for about 17 years. No, um, I don't know how long it's been going on. I voted the other day because I'm going to be away and I'm so glad I don't have to pay any attention. But none of us were paying attention anyway, were we? Because maybe we are increasingly cynical when our political leaders are standing up and actually saying, we know what the problems are and we have the solution. Jobs and growth, in case you hadn't noticed. Jobs and growth. But maybe it's not just our politicians. Maybe it's scientists who are telling us or or our belief in science that we will solve the problems that are facing humanity. Maybe it's an economic desire that actually if we can bring uh, the world into a place where we have just this ongoing economic growth, there'll be no poverty, everyone will be, it'll be fantastic. Maybe it's education. If everyone was educated, if everyone knew what they needed to know, then life would work. Maybe it's a faith in human nature. Maybe we just think one day we'll all pull together and it will all just work out. Maybe it's religion, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, anyism. Maybe it's religion. I think most of us in our culture at the moment are increasingly cynical and some of us have given up that there is any hope on that cosmic level, isn't there, on that big level. And so we just focus on the individual level. But you've got to have faith there too because if you don't have faith, what do you actually build your life on? What is at the centre? What gives your life significance what gives it meaning and purpose that is what you are having faith in the thing that is sitting at the functional center of your life the thing that calls the shots that tells you what goals are worth pursuing what's right what's wrong what's good what's bad that is the thing in which you trust now we can build our life pretty much on anything Take your pick, and people do. They come up with all sorts of causes, all sorts of ideas. 
all sorts of relationships. They have foundations. But like Jesus actually said, when he uses the parable of building the house on the foundation, you remember that? The house stood until its foundations were tested. Just ask the people of Collaroy Beach uh, as they watched their swimming pools and all sorts of other things just be washed away. Because you don't want to have the wrong foundation when the time comes. You want to know that your foundation will stand. And we would like to think that there is a foundation for hope in this world that is actually something that will stand in the long term. And Paul in Romans chapter 4 presents his case for God as the foundation of that hope. Now, we're going to do what we've done every week in our Romans series. We're going to stop and actually go back over where we've been before it. You know, when you watch one of those, uh, where it's an HBO thing, you know, the story so far. Uh, we're going to do that. Uh, why? Why do we do it? Doesn't it get a bit boring? Don't you know all the answers now? Well, some of you do. Uh, but it's really important because when you take things out of context, and that's what we're doing, we're putting things into context, when you take things out of context, you can pretty much make them say whatever you want. So I can find you verses in Scripture, two that come to mind in Psalms, that tell me there is no God. So I can say in Scripture, categorically, it says there is no God. Taking it out of context, immediately before, what does it say? The fool in his heart says. But what we're doing on a slightly bigger scale is putting Romans chapter 4 and every passage in Romans in that bigger picture, that context, because it actually helps us understand it, but also sorts out some of the challenges. So, where did we start? Paul's writing to the church in Rome. There it is, chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. He introduces himself, he greets them, he starts the ball rolling, and when he gets to verse 16, he introduces the gospel. That's his main topic. So you might remember, what's Paul say? I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. In it, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. For the Jew first, then for the Gentile. That is what Paul says as he introduces his gospel, his good news. And then he spends the next almost three chapters telling us why that good news is necessary. So he gives us, in essence, the bad news or the need for the gospel. And you can sum it up as Paul does in Romans 3 verse 9 when he says that Jew and Gentile, that's the whole human race, are slaves to sin. They are under sin. And that means they are under God's wrath, under his judgment, slaves to sin. That's the problem. And so when he comes in, in verses 21 to 26 of chapter 3, and as we saw just a few weeks ago, Paul then presents the gospel, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, as the one place where those who are slaves to sin are set free, where those who are objects of God's wrath, that wrath is turned away. They are redeemed out of slavery and they are declared righteous, right before God, not on the basis of anything that they've done, 
but on the basis of what Christ has done. So he unpacks the gospel, and then in the bit following that we're in at the moment, he's working out some of the implications. So last time we were in Romans, the whole sermon was about not boasting, that you have no reason to look down on anyone else, because if you are a person who is a Christian today, that is through faith, by grace. There's no merit in there for you. And we're going to sort out the second great implication of that today, And from next week, we start working out how life in the gospel, the life shaped by, founded on, built in, the gospel actually works. So you know where we're going? Know where we've come from? Let's grab our Bibles and have a look at chapter 4, verse 13. Paul here introduces his little new section. He says, It's not through the law that Abraham... And his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, Paul introduces the idea of promises. Now, promises are essential, aren't they? Whether they're explicit, you make them, I promise I will do this, or implicit, they're just things that are implied by what we do and what we say, promises are really, really important. And we know that's true, don't we? How do we feel when someone breaks their promise? When someone lets you down, when someone promised that they would do something for you and they don't deliver? Maybe you can remember what it's like being the kid whose parent promised, I'll be there at 3.30 to pick you up And at four o'clock, you're still standing there waiting for mum, waiting for dad. You feel heartbroken. And where trust is broken, relationships are not possible. And so in the same way as any human relationship, our relationship with God works on promises. And with promises, what we've actually got to ask ourselves is do we actually believe it? Do we actually believe it? So if someone invites you around to lunch after church, that contains a promise, doesn't it? The promise is, if you come around, I'll feed you. You've got to work out whether that person is able to deliver the promise that they are asking. Maybe if a two-year-old asks you around for lunch after church, you may be thinking, oh, I might check to see if mum or dad is behind that promise. But maybe someone else. Yeah, of course, I'd love to accept. That'd be fantastic because, you know, you get a great feed. Do you believe it? And here, Paul tells us that Abraham received a promise, not, I'll pick you up at 3.30, not, will you come around for lunch, to be the heir of the world. Some of us might think when we're going to inherit, you might actually get, you know, I hope I get the beach house or the car or the horse or whatever, you know, a particular piece of art, you know. Maybe there's the rich uncle or the rich aunt or the whoever. You're going to to get some worldly possessions. What's Abraham promised? Not worldly possessions. God, God promises him and his descendants the world. Do we think of God making promises like that? It's huge, isn't it? But let's go back and actually unpack what 
God meant by that. You see, back in chapter 12 of Genesis, uh, we read these words where God promises Abraham these things. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. What word dominates there for you? Blessing, yes? God promises Abraham in Genesis 12 that he is going to bring blessing in the face of the curse that has fallen in Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, humanity rebels, sin comes into the world, and the world comes under God's curse. And that unfolds chapter 4 through to chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, God says, I'm going to fix that problem through you, Abraham, and your descendants. God promised to Abram and his descendants that he would inherit the world. Because that it takes us back as God brings blessing, but also restores people to their rightful place. In Genesis chapter 1, before the fall, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule. God blessed them in verse 28 and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule. Humanity was meant to be God's representatives, ruling creation to bring his blessing to bear within his world. Sin totally stuffed that up, breaks that, brings us under God's curse. And what God promises Abraham is that he will set things right through Abraham's descendant who will inherit the world. That's a huge thing. The promise that God makes Abraham believed it. Now, when you became a Christian, if you are a Christian here this morning, is that what you thought you were getting into? That God was remaking the world, that God was bringing blessing, that God would restore you to humanity's rightful place in a renewed and restored creation. Or did you just think, maybe I'll get to go to heaven? Great. You do, can I say. You have eternity with God, but sometimes I think we get the me and Jesus thing and we personalise it to such a degree that we actually lose the picture that this is a cosmic salvation. That Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that God was reconciling the creation to himself. Not just me, Not just you, but the whole of creation. And so what the gospel promise is, is a promise that God will set all things right. And he will do that through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He will do that, as he says in verse 17, because he is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into the being the things that were not. He will recreate, he will remake, he will restore. And how do we get it? If that's the promise, it's a pretty good promise, yes? 
how do we get a hold of this? Now, for those of us who are parents, I guarantee you've said something like this. For those of us who are kids, which is all of us, you've heard it before. Mum and Dad say to you, if you clean the kitchen, if you wash the car, if you make your bed, familiar with this, then I will give you $10. Then we will do so. There'll be payout if you deliver. What Paul does is he shoots that kind of thinking dead. He says if it's through the law, it's a total failure. God doesn't say if you do the right things, if you keep my law, then this blessing is for you. Because he's already explained that no one can do it. No one can do it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 tells us that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law, Paul has explained up until this point, it brings wrath. God said, do this, and we don't. And so it demonstrates that we are right to be under his judgment. But Paul says it's not by the law. It's not by keeping God's standards. This promise, we get it by faith. And faith is simply the open hand that receives the free gift that God offers. It's a work of the Spirit in us provoked by the message itself. Someone makes a promise to you, that's the message, you've got to work out whether you believe it, whether you put your faith in them or not. Stephen Westerholm says it like this. He says, faith in this sense is a response to the gospel message evoked by the power of the message itself through the power of the Spirit of God. It's a gift. Ephesians 2 verse 8. It's a gift that God gives us. This promise, heir of the world, restored creation, received by faith in the one who makes the promise. He tells us in verse 16 that promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. Two incredible words, faith and grace. Grace is the free gift, the unmerited favour, the thing that we just don't deserve. We don't deserve to be heirs of the world. But God, through the perfect work of Christ, makes us that. And because it is a free gift, read there, it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are from the law, that's the Jews, but those who have the faith of Abraham, that's the Gentiles. So all humanity who put their faith in God through the gospel have a faith like Abraham, a faith that declares them right, a faith that receives the promise. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? An amazing thing. But when you think about it, faith is a challenging thing. Faith is a difficult thing. 
Who do you trust? Does anyone get those emails? I'm sure you do. Those lovely men in Nigeria who want to give you $17 million. Do you get those? If only you give them your bank account details so they can transfer that money. Do you trust them? Maybe you can remember the story of the Jungle Book where Mowgli, wandering through the forest, comes across Car, the lovely, friendly, trust-me snake, stares deep into Mowgli's eyes, mesmerises him and almost consumes him. Trust me. Who do we trust? God's making big promises. Do we trust him? The Nigerian guy, totally untrustworthy. Car? Well, the fact that it's a large snake should be a dead giveaway. But no, untrustworthy. Is God trustworthy? I want to jump ahead to the last verse where we have that Jesus, actually second last verse, verse 24, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Is God trustworthy? Can God deliver on his promises? He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He can deliver on your promise. Christians often wonder, am I really a Christian? Is my faith strong enough? We doubt We lack, the technical word for it is assurance. We struggle with it. But asking the question, is my faith strong enough, is actually the wrong question to ask. These doubts can cripple us. These doubts can make us actually so hesitant, so lacking confidence as Christians because we think that it's our faith that makes a difference. But as with every promise, it's actually not the faith that matters. It's actually the one who makes the promise. You can believe with all your heart that that two centimetres of ice across a pond will hold your weight. You're going to get wet. doesn't matter how much you believe it. It matters that the thing that you are trusting is not reliable. Maybe you do believe the Nigerian guy. He is going to empty your bank account. It doesn't matter how fervently you believe. He is not trustworthy. But God, the one who makes the promises to us, is 100% trustworthy and he's proved it because he raised Jesus from the dead. doesn't mean that faith is without challenge, though. Faith is not always easy. Look at verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. See, Abraham had been promised a child. You, You saw it there in Genesis 2. I will make you into a great nation. Abraham married to Sarah, no kids. 
They're relatively young at this kind of point, I think. 75, maybe, from memory. Relatively young. Okay, they go off, and it's been a number of years, and they've moved to, the, to Canaan, and then God makes them another promise. The word of the Lord came to Abraham, who'd been saying, hey, God, are you going to deliver on this promise? Because at the moment, a guy called Eliezer of Damascus, he's my heir. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham, old man, Sarah, old woman, no kids, promised descendants as numerous as the stars. As Paul says in the start of this passage, promises, in essence, that his descendant will be the heir of the world. There are lots of things in the way. Paul says his body as good as dead. Sarah's womb dead. But they believed. They believed. 15 verse 6, Abram believed the Lord. God made a promise Abram says, infertility, age, doesn't matter. I trust God and he credited to him as righteousness. That's Abram. But faith for us is not easy as well, is it? When God calls us to do things that seem to be absurd, Effectively saying to a really old couple, you're going to have kids, and lots of them. When he actually says, trust me, my way is the best way. When you look around at school or uni or work, and everyone else is just having way more fun than you are. But God's actually said, this is the best way to live. This is the best way to live. And everyone else is looking at you and going, you're an idiot. Why would you do that? Come and join in. Will you trust God's way or doubt the goodness of the one who calls you to live for him? Faith is hard. Because faith is lived out. Can I just say, that kind of stuff, it's not new. Peter wrote this in the first century. They are surprised that you do not join with them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. Being excluded because you won't party with them is as old as the New Testament. It's not a 21st century issue. It's a first century issue in every century in between. What is it for you where faith just seems too hard. Trusting God. Trusting God that he is in this. Trusting God that he is over this. Trusting God that seeing things his way is the best way. 
See, Abraham is a model for us. Paul presents him deliberately as that. But if you know Abraham's story, you'd realise that Paul has only picked up on half the picture here. You know the story? Up until chapter 15, God's making promises and the only thing that Abraham's doing is sort of reminding God every now and again, hey God, what about you deliver on some of these promises? And we're talking years between the promises and the delivery. But after chapter 15... Abram starts to think, well, maybe God needs a bit of help. And so Sarah, very generously, hands over her handmaiden. Uh, And um, she and Abram, well, they have a child, Ishmael. But you know what? God comes back in chapter 17 and says, your wife, Sarah, shall bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. You're not going to short-circuit this, Abram. You're not going to do it your way, Abram. It is Sarah who will bear Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Abram wasn't always rock solid. But there is a trajectory of his faith that when we get just a few chapters on into chapter 22 and God tests Abram and says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. What's Abram do? He doesn't try and argue with God. God's told him, go. To take the child that he promised, the one who would bring forth the nations, the one whose descendants would inherit the world. And he takes him to the mountain. And he's there ready to sacrifice this child until God stays his hand. And we read in Hebrews 11 that by faith, when God tested him, Abram offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his only one and only son, even though God had said, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abram reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. That's faith, brothers and sisters. Faith that although it seems absurd, faith that it seems that there are insurmountable barriers in the way, Abram is presented to us as a man of faith. How do you know you've got faith? What calls the shots? When your father says jump, Do you trust that he'll catch you? Or do you say, oh, look, God, you're more than capable. I know that. But I'm pretty comfy up here and the view is so much better than down there. You know, you could use me up here. I I don't need to jump down there. Faith affects life because it comes out of a relationship with God himself. C.S. Lewis challenges our views on faith. He says, if what you call your faith in Christ does not involve taking the slightest notice of what he says, if it doesn't 
translate in how you live, then it is not faith at all. Not faith or trust in him, but only intellectual acceptance of some theory about him. What have you done because of Jesus? Or what have you not done because of Jesus? How has your faith shaped your life? Or are we perhaps just ticking boxes and not seeing that transformation at all? Brothers and sisters, Paul writes for us in verse 23 that these words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. This is for us. This reminder of the incredible faithfulness of God to Abraham is for us. Brothers and sisters, don't walk out of here saying, I've got to have more faith, I've got to have more faith. I pray you walk out of here this morning saying, our God is so trustworthy. Our God keeps his promises. Our God is worthy of faith. Because Abraham, he had the promise. We have the fulfillment. We have the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We have Jesus handed over literally because of our transgressions. That's what chapter 4 verse 25 says. Many of your NIVs will have four written there. He's handed over four our transgressions. But the problem with that, it makes it sounds like he was raised to achieve our justification. It's much better to see because of. He was handed over because you and I were sinners and he is the sin bearer. And he was raised because of, same word, our justification. Because his death achieved our forgiveness, because his death turned away God's wrath, because his death redeemed us out of slavery to sin, Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, the ultimate proof that God keeps his promises. So brothers and sisters, when we think about something to build our life on, when we think of a foundation, not just for our lives, but a foundation for hope that includes the whole world, it is only in Christ that you find that. And God has given us ample evidence to prove that he is trustworthy. He's proved it to Abraham. He's proved it to Jesus by raising him from the dead. He's given us a foundation that will never be shaken and he has given us a hope that will never be disappointed. We have a faithful God. Trust him. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you. We thank you that you you have fulfilled every promise. All your promises are yes in Christ. Father, you do not let us down. Father, we pray that you would be constantly, by your Spirit, through your Word, bringing before us your amazing faithfulness and that your Spirit would provoke in us a heart of faith, that we would believe as Abraham believed and that faith, that foundation that you put under our feet of his work and the righteousness that is ours because of him. Father, that would transform our lives. Father, we thank you that you keep your promises. Amen.